How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 298 of x where, uh, well, we got a lot, a lot to talk about today. It is currently about 10 a.m. here, which means I've been working on this script for, uh, four and a half hours. <laughs> this is a, uh, big, big issue. A lot of stuff to, uh, a lot of meat in this issue. A lot of stuff to think about. A lot of stuff to throw around. Um, a lot of stuff to love, and a lot of stuff to uh, maybe not love so much. So, how about we hop in to the penultimate issue of the uh, of the Hickman era here? This is Inferno, Volume Two, Number Three. Set a January 2022 cover day, written of course by Jonathan Hickman, with art by R. B. Silva, Stefano Caselli, and Valerio Shidi. Inks by Adriano De Benedetto. I tried saying that right. Uh, yeah, that didn't go so well. Uh, Adriano de Benedetto. <clears throat> Colors, David Curiel. Letters, VCs, Josephino. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Amaro Bisa white Sabolski. Cover price, $6. And this one went on sale either November the 24th or December the 8th or somewhere in between those two dates in uh, 2021. The uh, Of course, you guys know the releases right now are a little jank. We don't know... Uh, when books are coming out, we don't know when books are wrapping up. We are uh, mostly playing it by ear here. Because even last week, I uh, went to the comic shop with the express purpose of buying a book that was on the comic list for that week, and uh, it didn't show up. So uh, even at the last minute, uh, books are just not showing up or are showing up without uh, without warning. It's a, It's a weird time to be. Anyway, how about we get into the issue here, and we open with a mostly blank quote page, featuring a quote that we will be uh, revisiting a little bit later on. Uh, Here we have Omega Sentinel saying that she knows a very different history of the world, and we will get... uh, We'll get the inch deep mile wide on that as we uh, as we work our way through. Now our story opens with a flashback into Hoxpox. Uh, it's issue something or another of Hoxpox. Uh, it's the scene where Professor X has brought Doug Ramsey to Krakoa to tell him a little bit about his plans for the future of mutant kind. Now this scene takes us a little bit deeper than the one that we saw during Hoxpox. Um, Xavier shows Doug that he wants this to be a mutant home for mutant people, and he calls it the beginning of mutant ascendance, which sounds a little ominous here, right? Uh, ascendancy is something we've talked about quite a bit during the earlier episodes of the show with things like the machines and the phalanx and stuff like that, so having Xavier use a term like ascendance is, uh, is perhaps a little bit dicey. Now, he asked Doug how long it might take for him to befriend the Killer Island and deduce a way in which they can communicate. And Doug suggests it could take him six months, or, well, if he sucks at it, maybe a year. 
Xavier tosses him a duffel and says, hey, you better get at it before uh, taking off, and he leaves poor Cypher all to his lonesome on the deserted killer mutant island. Well, not exactly. Xavier didn't realize it, but Doug wasn't alone. You see, he's got his self-friend Warlock in tow, and of course we saw him... We saw him using Warlock as like a fake arm for a while, or just an arm covering, which nobody seemed to notice for some reason. Anyway, so Warlock pops up, and the two talk about whether or not they should trust Xavier. And, well, they want to, but, uh, well, naturally, they don't. We jump ahead to later on during this process, and Doug appears to be making a bit of headway in communicating with Krakoa. We find out here that Krakoa and Warlock are feeding off of each other, which... I don't know about all of that, but, um, you know, I thought Krakoa could only feed off mutants. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, and that Warlock was only, like, technically a mutant, since he was, like, different than the rest of the Technarchy or whatever, the Magus or whatever. I thought that's what made him a mutant. I thought it was very much a technicality, but maybe I'm wrong. And, and I mean, this is a story beat that's going to bear fruit, so how about we just roll with it? Let's jump to one month later, where the five and one are reunited. We've got two dead cuckoos born of gold balls here, and Xavier welcomes them back. And uh, they seem to be the first, or like the test run for the resurrection protocols. And Doug is pretty shocked to see that this actually worked, and he now sees the possibilities of Xavier's grand plan. We jump ahead another month, where Cypher presents Xavier with two of Krakoa's flowers. They are the habitat flower and the gateway flower. And of course, these will become the basis for much of this era, as our heroes live in the habitats and travel via the gateways. It's worth noting that it's here where we see Magneto introduced to the new status quo, or at the very least, it's the first time we're seeing him actively hanging out on Krakoa. From here, we jump to four months ago, and we're about to find out that time is a very, very slippery thing indeed, and we're not even at the worst of it yet. Anyway, it's here where Cypher hands over flowers L, I, and M to Beast. And, of course, these are the mutant magic meds. Flower L is the human life extender. I think it extends life five years. I don't know if it does it every time you take it, but uh, at the very least, you get five more years. Uh, Flower I is like that panacea kind. It's like an antibiotic for anything. And Flower M is the mental health dealie. Now, Beast talks about how these drugs will only work on humans... And uh, I gotta ask, is that new information? Maybe? I don't remember. Uh, Beast also asks if Doug used the cadavers that he supplied to do something. Uh, Doug says he did, and that it was super gross. And I'm not entirely clear what that's all about. Maybe the cadavers were instrumental in um, in bringing these drugs to the fore? I, I couldn't imagine just yet. Maybe we'll get more answers. Well, we won't be getting them today, but hey, maybe we'll get them next time. I, I don't know. Uh, From here, we jump ahead to two months ago. Now, two months ago. Alrighty. Now it's here where Professor X is preparing to make his big hoxpox speech to the planet. Two months ago. So I probably wouldn't be doing my, you know, uh, self-prescribed job if I didn't point out that uh, everything that's happened in these books, and in all Marvel comics in the past two and a half years... um, has actually happened within two months? Really? Um, Let's go through a little bit of this here, just for uh, gips and shiggles, right? Um, We had Exitense, right? We had the endless preparation for the Hellfire Gala. I mean, where we had books for months at a time saying, hey, we got to get ready for this party. 
That all, you know, I mean, that was all in one little sliver of two months. Uh, Quentin Quire died several hundred times in two months. That's 60 days. So we're to believe he died like three times a day? Uh, the life and death of Kid Cable, or the life and, I guess, leaving of Kid Cable. King and Black, Empire, Franklin Richards coming to Krakoa and then being unmutanted. Terra Verde being taken over by Beast. Uh, Onslaught coming back. Apocalypse training Richter and Magic. Otherworld being overthrown like 115 times. The formation of X-Corp. The formation of Xeno. The several thousand Russian groups forming. Ominous Verendi, the new Reavers. Plus, you know, I guess we really probably shouldn't forget all those numerous months-ago references we've seen in the other X-Books over the past couple of years. Huh. It's almost as if we don't have a small army of editors to keep this straight. Well, yeah, of course, you know, I mean, we do. Uh, They're just scared to dare to correct the almighty head of X. Because, you know, we mustn't have him, you know, up and quit. Whoops. Uh, Anyway, it's during this flashback that Cypher and Krakoa discuss the no place, a hidden place under the island. They refer to it as a tumor. Uh, Only uh, Cypher and Warlock don't yet know the actual reason why they're being asked to put this in there or to have this happen. And so, they decide to use the fact that Warlock and Krakoa were feeding off each other to in- inject some, like, phalanxy surveillance into this no place. And, well, this takes us to two days ago. And we see that Doug is watching the scene of Mora demanding Destiny be killed and burned from existence play out. So he knows everything. What's he gonna do with it? Well, we don't know yet, and we won't find out this issue either. Uh, let's head to our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters include Professor X, Magneto, Mora X, Mystique, Destiny, Cypher, Emma Frost, Warlock, Krakoa, Omega Sentinel, and Nimrod. We jump to the present, where Destiny and Mystique have arrived at the White Palace to meet up with Emma Frost. Or to answer a, uh, a, a summons from Emma Frost, rather. Uh, Destiny sees the cuckoos and doesn't recognize them, which makes sense. She was dead before they showed up. She asks how they can, you know, tell each other apart, like, what's their deal? Which invites quite the odd discussion about how the five and one are, well, just that. They consider themselves one person in five bodies. And they do talk about how they once tried to be individuals, but, uh, yeah, it wasn't a color that was good on them. They ultimately rejected it. Now, if you're not aware, <laughs> their attempt to be individuals was, a This was a Bendisonian attempt at giving them different personalities, basically by introducing them to a hairdresser and having them dye their hair different colors. And that's really about as deep as it went. Characterization, thy name is Bendis. Uh, Destiny gives them the once-over and then starts prophesizing about their individual futures. She says two of them will find love and three will not. One will be changed forever in other world. Uh, The cuckoos ask which ones she's talking about. To which Destiny's all, eh, it doesn't matter. You're just, you know, one person in five bodies anyway, so what does it matter? Um, From here, we go to the meeting with Emma. Now, Emma fills Mystique and Destiny in on several things here. A, Mora being alive. B, Mora being a mutant. C, Mora's mutant power of rebirth. D, Mora resetting the timeline with each death. And E, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants killing Mora during her third life. Now, initially, Raven and Irene are a bit incredulous, and in fairness, it is a lot to take in. Emma suggests that there might just be a way to stop Mora from resetting everything this time around. Mystique and Destiny, well, they're not so sure if they should trust her. They see her as 
simply pulling the strings just like Chuck and Eric do. Mystique plainly asks Emma whose side she's on, to which she kind of declines to answer. She's basically on her own side. She says she'll never actually side with Mystique and Destiny, at least not officially. But she's also done with Xavier and Magneto. She's not with them anymore. So she says it's just her and the children. Mystique calls her a coward, but Destiny, you know, she tells her not to be so harsh because uh, Emma does have certain gifts. Our scene now shifts to Paris as Mora visits her safe house, or, or rather leaves from her safe house. Uh, here, she is jumped by some Orcus beekeepers and dragged away. And we might assume that Mystique tipped them off, but uh, we don't get any confirmation on that just yet. Um, kind of weird that a person who isn't supposed to exist just casually walks through, you know, <laughs> major cities of the planet. And uh, I don't know. We'll, well, I guess we'll allow it because we really don't have much of a choice. Next stop, the House of M, the actual physical place, not the horrible Bendis series. Here, Magneto is approached by Xavier for a chat. Now, they, too, discuss the weird cycle of moral lives and deaths, and how they're pretty much in a Groundhog Day situation, doomed to keep repeating the cycle. We find out that when Emma was let in on the big secret, well, she didn't get the whole story. She didn't get the accurate story. You see, the version they gave her uh, stated that in each and every timeline, or moral lifeline, rather, the mutants win. And, of course, you know, we've known from the very start that it's, in fact, the opposite that's true. During the chat, Xavier psychically hears Mora scream. He knows that she's hurt, possibly dying. Magneto pulls up some weird orb and is able to deduce her position. And they figure that she is in an Orcus node located in Terra Verde. From here, we shift scenes up to the Orcus Forge so we can continue that painfully slow conversation that's been going on between Karima, What's-Her-Face, and Nimrod for the past several issues. Now it's here where we finally get some answers as to why Karima is with Orcus in the first place. She, um, well, she actually started Orcus, and uh, we'll get into that. You see, she knows a different history of the world, just like she said on the mostly blank quote page that opened the issue. So here's the thing. Karima is, well, not an alternate version of Kitty Pride or anything, but kind of fits into the Kitty Pride Days of Future Past mold. Uh, the future that she knows is that uh, the mutants led by Xavier and Magneto, actually win. Well, they always win. They beat humanity, they beat the machines. And, well, um, Xavier and Magneto weren't quite as merciful toward the non-mutants as we might expect, or we might want to expect. Uh, that whole absolute power deal uh, might come into uh, the fore of our brain at that point. So, yeah, Karima came back to t in time. She was sent back in time. She started Orcus. Now, she used Killian Devo as sort of a puppet figurehead while kind of remaining in the background herself, and more on that in just a little bit. She continues explaining and lays out some of this alternate future past. Now, the children of the vault symbolize post-humanity, and they will emerge soon. And in fact, we see Aguja, Pero, Serafina, Fuego, and Sangre uh, coming out of the vault. Only they weren't done baking just yet. They pop out of the oven a little too early. You see, the children fall to Krakoa, as shown here to include Apocalypse, Genesis, and the original Four Horsemen. So, perhaps they're coming back, or maybe this is just, a, a, you know, one of Karima's possible future pasts. A Nimrod is created in the future, 
and is sent back to the present past to uh, snuff out mutantum in its uh, relative infancy. I believe this is supposed to be a reference to the original Nimrod, the one that we you know met first, uh, who showed up around the time of, and, uh, well, I can't remember the actual issue. I probably should have looked it up. It wouldn't have been hard to do so, but I know it was around the time of Uncanny 200, or maybe a little bit before that. He showed up in order to take out uh, Rachel. Now, this was a lesser Nimrod, a flawed Nimrod, and uh, and so it failed. And, you know, I seem to remember there being some spoo about Nimrod the Lesser, but honestly, uh, damned if I can remember if that was ever explained. I mean, hell, maybe this is that explanation. I don't know. Anyway, from here, I think we get back to X-Cubed, or X-Men Year 1000 from, you know, Hawkspox. Because we got, like, Dominions and, and high-concept phalanxy-looking stuff going on. Um, but uh, apparently the mutants were able to defeat these Dominions thanks to help from the Phoenix Blade. So uh, Karima, Omega Sentinel, existed at the end of time, or something. Uh, the way she says it, she was the only thing left at the end of time. Anyway, she heads back to the past-present with help from a trickster titan or something where she starts orcus as an attempt to stop this future from coming to pass she finds human killian devo swaps out his eyes for some artificial ones and she manages to make him believe that uh well he's from her future i don't know if she downloads the thoughts into his head or if the eyes make him see something different in any event um are you starting to see how orcus and the hoxpox x-men are kind of like two sides of the same coin you know, Mora thinks the mutants always lose, so she begins tinkering behind the scenes. Karima thinks the mutants always win, so she begins tinkering behind the scenes. Mora, you know, quote-unquote downloads all the memories of her lives into Xavier's head to get him on board, and Karima downloads all the memories of her life into Devo's head to get him on board. Hmm. Anyway, uh, this chat is interrupted with an alarm coming from Terra Verde. And from here, we hop into six info pages, and these are timelines, and we'll do our best to go through them. This is this is one of those things where it's a lot easier just to, like, show rather than tell, but uh, since this is an audio program, I don't have much choice. I have to just try to tell. Now, this is the Omega Sentinel history timeline. We see Mora's Life 10, and it's a straight line, but then it kind of bends around an Omega, you know, Greek symbol. And uh, we find out that the Omega has eight stages of life here. Uh, we have the first seven right now. One is infection, two is nesting, three is replication, four is dormancy, five is activation, six is union, and seven is adaptation. We continue the Omega Sentinel timeline here with the emergence of the children of the vault. Now this leads to the human children mutant war during which we get, uh, you know, an enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of thing, and the humans and the mutants align. Later, Apocalypse returns, and the children are defeated, as we saw, you know, a few pages ago. Uh, then we get our wartime human skunk works, during which Nimrod is designed, and uh, Nimrod is ultimately designed by Aaliyah Gregor. Then we have the human mutant war, after which flawed Nimrod is sent back in time. And he's sent back to Mora's Life 10 timeline, which we will get to in just a little bit. But we'll continue on the Omega timeline now, and I apologize if this makes no sense. It just I'm sure out of the Skate 800 comic book websites out there that rush to spoil crap, you could find this very, very easily if you wanted to. From here we have the Mutant Ascendancy, and the Taming of the Phoenix, and the Forging of the Rookshear Blade. 
Now, the Rookshear Blade, by the way, first appeared in Uncanny X-Men number 479 during Ed Brubaker's interminable rise and fall of the Shi'ar Empire storyline, which I think still might be going on, because that thing never ended. Uh, Rookshear was a Shi'ar who would become an avatar for the Phoenix Force, and in fact, the Imperial Guard was actually put together in the first place in order to stop him, and stop him they did. Gladiator killed him. It's worth noting, we see a bunch of folks here in front of a Dominion holding this, uh, I'm assuming, the Rookshear blade. It looks like a spear, but it, I'm thinking it's maybe an evolution of that blade. Uh, we have one of them being referred to as the Child of the Sun. Who might that be? I don't know, but I have a theory. Uh, I seem to remember my Powers of X number 6 came with a foreshadowing variant, one of the... <laughs> Most awful variants you could ever hope to get. This side of the Ohatmu variant. Uh, this featured Sunspot sat on a throne with a bunch of Shi'ars bowing to him. It couldn't possibly be a reference to this, could it? Eh, maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't. From here we get Omega Phase 8, which puts Omega Sentinel online. Then we have our Dominion Mutant War. The Dominion Hunt, whatever that is. Then finally, the Trickster Titan captures the Omega Colonel and sends it back through time, back into Mora's 10th life. So let's take a look at Mora's Life 10 here. Uh, we're going to start with Nimrod being sent back. We just have two little nodes to get to, uh, and they are Nimrod arrives in the past, and the Nimrod Colonel is compromised. Then we rejoin from Omega being sent back by the Trickster Titan. Omega Sentinel appears online three years earlier than it would have otherwise. Killian Devo is seduced into Orcusing. The Orcus Protocols are created, then Orcus itself as a unit is formed. Aaliyah Gregor is recruited, and Nimrod the Greater is put into motion. From here, we get back to comics, and we are rapidly approaching the end of this issue. We're in Terra Verde. Uh, Xavier and Magneto arrive at the Orcus node and find the place has been... Well, wrecked, decimated, it's full of dead bodies. And they follow Mora's signal deeper and deeper into this place, and they ultimately deduce that she's behind a large steel door. We shift over to Mystique and Destiny, who are, well, they're chatting up Mora right now. And Raven tells her that uh, there ain't nobody coming to save her, and, uh, well, she's right. You see, over in the node, Xavier and Magneto continue following Mora's signal... But, uh, well, that's only because Mystique done chopped off Mora's arm and planted it in Terra Verde. And I tell you what, I totally forgot about the Mora tracker in her elbow. So that's what they've been following. Uh, it turns out Chuck and Eric have been lured into a trap, and we close out this issue with them being confronted by Nimrod and Karima. Next episode, I believe, is the final issue of Marauders before uh, Steve Orlando comes in and, and turns them all into uh, robots. But, um... But that's a bridge we will burn another day. Let's, uh, let's worry about today right now. And, um, you know, I really, really enjoyed this issue. I thought this was a great issue, um, really played to not only Hickman's strengths, but the strengths of the original mission statement of um, this post-Hoxpox era. And it really hammers home to me this feeling like this entire era should have been a a more cloistered, uh, a creative uh, vision, and a finite story. You know, six months to a year tops. You know, let Hickman tell his story as he wants to tell it. Let's jettison all the uh, superfluous, is that the word? <laughs> um, padding to this era. Let's just uh, tell this story. 
You know, I'm getting like flashbacks to the Clone Saga where, you know, we, we've heard stories about what the original Clone Saga was, or the original 90s Clone Saga, I should say, was going to be. And it was a finite story. It was going to be a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then a return to a status quo. And I mean, whether or not that would have been a great story, well, we won't ever know. But the story we ultimately got was padded and painful. And a lot of this Hoxpox era has been the same here, just waiting for Hickman to get around to telling the story that he, he wanted to tell from the start, at least, you know, allegedly. I'm not sure if the story he wanted to tell was really an X-Men story, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a bit, but it was still his story. And if we're going to hand over the entire line to him, then, you know, damn it, let him tell the story, and let's not confuse the story or muddle the story or... Uh, usurp the story, as uh, the case may be right now. I tell you, you spend one year telling this story and building to this story from Hoxpox to Inferno, you got a satisfying read there. You know, I was thinking about, uh, we have a show on this channel called The Essential X-Labs, where I go through the Silver Age, but putting together some sort of a an essential current year X-Labs, like, what would be the books that we would put in to the essential must-read issues from this run. And I don't know that it would be a terribly long episode. I mean, of course, it would be longer than a normal episode. It would be longer than, you know, even a collected edition episode. But I tell you what, it certainly wouldn't be 300 episodes long. It wouldn't be 100 episodes long. It probably wouldn't be 25 episodes long. There aren't very many issues that really mattered in the grand scheme of things here. And, uh... I mean, wheels within wheels, right? We got marketing that we got to deal with. We got uh, ad space we got to fill. We got writers we got to put to work. It's an endeavor that's out to make money. And um, sales went up a bit. So, of course, we're going to stretch things out. We're going to bleed it out. And we're going to just squeeze every last red cent out of this uh, out of this concept. Um, uh, but I, I will... I'll move on. I'll move on. Um, I did enjoy seeing the uh, mutants and Orcus as sort of like, you know, mirror images of each other, you know, to, uh, two sides of the same coin. Uh, they're both going to extremes in order to win, right? Or at least to stop the other side from winning. But ultimately, they only hasten the combustible conclusion here. Everything they do is just rushing things into place. And, uh, you know, there's a lot we could talk about there in, like... Uh, you know, any any sort of time travel sort of uh, piece of fiction where it's like knowledge of the future or futures often makes the person kind of gravitate toward those futures, right? We've seen here where everything the mutants have done have just put things in place that much quicker. And I think we can see from the other side here all the stuff that Orcus has done, it's kind of doing the same thing, which is pretty neat. Now, it's not perfect because... The problem with this is that we're left with, you know, we're seeing both sides here, but everybody's an asshole. Um, we're left with nobody to actually root for. That's not ideal. I'm not rooting for the mutants. I'm not rooting for Orcus. I'm, I'm not rooting for anybody. It's not ideal. Um, I did like seeing Karima as, like, the Orcus-flavored Kitty Pride in the alternate Days of Future Past. Well, you know, part Kitty, part Mora, I suppose. Though, I, I tell you something here, I'm really getting tired of all the rehash. Like, you guys know me, I love continuity. Perhaps I love continuity a bit too much. 
But, I mean, not everything needs to be a reference. You know, uh, not every issue needs to have a, to me, my X-Men. Not every issue needs to have a, you know, I mean, they slipped in Days of Future Past in this issue. And I'm sure they thought they were very clever in doing so, but I see that and I'm just like, oh, reference. You know, I, I get it. I get it. Um, I mean, it's bad enough that we're reusing concepts right now, like Inferno and Trial of Magneto, without much reason. But, I mean, give me something completely new, please. I mean, this is the high-concept stuff here. Let's do new. Then again, uh, you know, this entire line is being shepherded by the guy who gave us the reference-laden Secret Wars 30 years after its sell-by date, so what are you going to do? And, you know, maybe this is why I have such a fondness for the Morrison run, because... It actually felt new. You know, they called it New X-Men, perhaps for a reason. It actually felt like the next evolution, and it wasn't a slave to what came before it. It didn't contradict what came before it, but it also just, you know, every three pages wasn't like a, hey, by the way, nudge, nudge, you're reading an X-Men comic. To me, my X-Men. To me, my X-Men. Ooh, Mutant Massacre. We don't need all these references. It's just a little bit much. Um, Speaking of a bit much... uh, uh, we're introduced to the concept of a trickster titan. Huh? <laughs> um, I swear. Um, one of the things that we've theorized, or that has been rumored on the rumor-mongering sites, is that uh, this entire vision was going to be a pitch for DC's Legion of Superheroes or the Eternals that uh, both Marvel and DC decided to pass on. I see words trickster titan. And I feel like that's a holdover from the Legion or Eternals pitch. I I could be completely wrong. You know, I probably am, but uh, it's one of those things that kind of made me roll my eyes. Speaking of rolling my eyes, where the hell's Colossus? Uh, You remember how that was like our big outro last issue? Colossus being added to the Quiet Council as someone that Xavier and Magneto could trust? And he doesn't even show up here? And, and hey, on the subject of Colossus, you remember when Xavier visited him after he murdered What's-Her-Face over in X-Force? Well, that was never followed up on either. Um, should, should I just, uh, should I complain about editors not doing their job, or like any job again? Nah, nah, we'll just leave it be. Let's uh, shift gears here for a bit here, and I'll, I'll beg your indulgence, because I'm going to get into some silly stuff here. Um, I, I get that this is a uh, slippery slope situation to even bring something like this up. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the scientific method. Uh, I used to joke about the origins of Barry Allen and Wally West being exactly the same as, you know, the scientific method at work. You know, if you're in any scientific field or have ever been a student of science, you'll know that replication is really one of the truest measures of efficacy in experimentation. So I would joke that using a sample size of two, Wally and Barry, now that made it so anybody who got hit by lightning while in the presence of police lab equipment will, without exception, be granted super speed. And, you know, access to the speed force and a weakness to stories with crisis in the title, yada, 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 yada. Well, here, we've got Mora and Karima, with a similarly small, though not as small, sample size, deducing that every single time their side is going to lose. Now, I get that we're going high concept here, and I should know better than to question the infallible head of X, but um, really, this small a sample size shouldn't snuff out all hope that things can't be different in the future. It really kind of feels like a what's-the-point sort of situation. If you're always going to lose, then why fight at all? 
Just live your life and exit when it's your time. I mean, I don't know. Again, it's sci-fi, it's high concept, and I'm talking out my ass. But it seems like uh, if it's already a foregone conclusion and any variable you can add to the mix is only going to either hasten the end or hasten your loss or just add to your loss, then why even bother doing anything but hiding under your bed? I don't know, maybe this series is the answer to that question, right? Uh, there, There is hope, because they are still fighting. They are still trying, but I don't know, there's just something about scientific minds not having a willingness to accept that there are other possibilities that... I don't want to say it pulls me out of the story, because it really doesn't, but um, I don't know, it just doesn't sit right with me. Now, with all that said, I, I swear I loved this issue. <laughs> I really, really did. Of course, there are things we can poke holes in. We can poke holes in anything. We're not a 10 out of 10 factory. I'm not hoping for a Hickman retweet. I'm not doing this for the Hickman retweet or endorsement. So uh, I can be a smidge less sycophantic (laughs) than a lot of the uh, reviewers out there. But anyway, I really, really enjoyed this issue. Uh, Every turn of the page was exciting, and uh, that doesn't happen very often. You know, it's a rare occasion where... Like, I actually can't wait to turn the page. And here we were. You know, uh, Magneto and Xavier being lured into that trap. And, and, you know, I'm looking at the art and I'm like, wait, Mora's missing an arm. When did that happen? You know, did that happen? Is that what we're seeing? I mean, there was so many things that just kind of hit, and they hit right. Getting uh, the look at uh, Doug Ramsey's point of view during his time on the island, that was really cool to finally see. Even though we knew some of it. It was really cool to get a deeper look at it. Um, Having Karima and Nimrod finally finish up, or finally continue, their conversation was cool. It was just really, you know, it kind of sucks that we're waiting until the very end to pick this thing up. Because the first two issues of this I loved as well, but not as much as this one. This one was special. This one made me feel like we were back in the Hoxpox days. And uh, if you've been listening ever since then, or if you've recently listened to those episodes, you'll probably remember the... You know, childlike naivete I had <laughs> during those episodes where I was equal parts nervous and excited and really just allowed myself to be taken on a ride uh, despite being nervous at all those shoes that were rapidly dropping around uh, around our heads. So overall, uh, this issue and, you know, this Inferno miniseries gets a high, high recommendation from me. Um, this is adding to and paying off a lot of what brought us to the game in the first place here with Hoxpox and some of those very special issues uh, of Hickman's run that we've had in the interim, you know, the Mystique issue, the Crucible issue, stuff like that, that really adds to the lore and to the just world building of this era. This is payoff. This is good stuff. And um, as I'm recording this, this is a Wednesday, January 5th, where the next issue, the final issue of Inferno, actually hits the shelves today. And it's pretty much everything I can do not to rush out and and pick up a copy because I really want to see what happens here. But of course, that's not the way we play the game on this channel. We do everything in order, at least to the best of our ability. So we will get there when we get there. But, my friends, I think that's about all I have to say about this issue. I want to, uh, I want to do another, uh, not call to arms, but a, uh, a call to action like I did last episode here. I want to do a uh, temperature taking. I want to take the temperature of the X-Men readership and the X-Lapse listenership. I got a little bit concerned or overly concerned that I'm being a little too negative with this, uh, what I consider to be lame duck period 
in the the post Hoxpox era here where we're basically just spinning our wheels waiting for this inferno story to end and um i worry that it might be a case of familiarity have how do you say that word familiarity easy for me to say breeding contempt and the fact that i do spend an unhealthy amount of time with each and every issue of this run <laughs> kind of poisoning the well poisoning my mind here and uh Maybe expecting too much out of these books You know, expecting more than what a single issue of a comic book is going to give As I compare it to the amount of time I invest in each individual issue Especially in a time where I've either projected or am just observing The fact that we are, in fact, treading water and spinning our wheels So I want to just know from you all if I'm being a little too negative And, you know, I'm not apologizing for having these thoughts here I just... Want to know how it comes across is all And also how you guys feel about the books Do you feel we're in a water-treading era? Are we just killing time until this story's over? I would really, really like to know And uh, a second uh, call to action here What would you all say are your essential X-lapsed issues? Um, what are the issues of this Hickman run that are must-read? Like, is there a way to distill the past 298 issues into a somewhat readable, no-fluff, no-filler sort of experience? I think we used to call these the, you know, the red bar issues, because in the, you know, what's to come page, it would have, like, a red bar on the very, very important issues. What would you say are the red bar issues overall? You know, just off the top of your head, nothing, you know, <laughs> we don't need any citations here, just off the top of your head, what are some of the stories that have happened from soup to nuts that have stuck with you and that you feel have added something to this era, added something to the world-building attempt that is the Krakoan era of X-Men? I'd love to hear your thoughts, and maybe we'll even put something together as a collected, uh, you know, all-killer, no-filler edition of this entire run. So let me know your thoughts if you would I would very, very much appreciate it uh, And if you want to let me know those thoughts You can find me several different ways to do so You can reach me on Twitter at Ace Comics You can reach me on Instagram, I think, at 90s X-Men I don't know how to talk to people on Instagram I, I know I have one <laughs> I just don't know if I can I think there are DMs in there, I think uh, You can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com Or you can call the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK for blog posts, show notes, and another place you can leave comments, Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. You can join us on Facebook to talk as well. That's 90s X-Men. Of course, the complete audio archives are available at ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com or by searching Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill anywhere. I'm sure if you pop that into any sort of search engine, you'll find something having to do with the show and probably a way to listen to it. Uh, and finally, there is the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash xlaps, where you'll find a bunch of exclusive content, behind-the-scenes stuff. And in fact, I uh, just recently released the first episode of uh, what was going to be my original Patreon-exclusive series here. It was something I floated... Boy, I think this show was up to episode 50, because I thought, at, at, you know, when I reach episode 50, I'd be comfortable launching a Patreon because I would have established a pattern of behavior and reliability. And, well, I didn't launch the Patreon until 200 episodes after that. I think it was with episode 250 that we put it out. So um, this one that I just put out was what I recorded back when I did episode 50, all those, I guess at this point, over a year ago. And it was a discussion of the first part of Age of X-Men, 
which is something I'm calling Age of X-Lapsed. I, I know it's very, very creative, but um, that's currently up there on the Patreon, so if anybody wants to hear that or check it out, I, I invite you to do so. Now, with all that said, I think I should probably stop yapping because um, I think I've been working on this episode for over six hours now, and it's time to finally put it to bed. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Searching